0: Good morning, and once again, welcome. Happy that you are here as part of our worship today, and to participate in our study together of the uh, Book of Daniel. Uh, there is a verse of Scripture that has come to mean a lot to me, and it especially stands out in my mind when I read something like Daniel 7 or 9:20 20 to 27. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed." "...belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." I think what that verse tells us is there are simply some things that we are not going to understand. There are some things, even in Scripture, that we are not going to be able to grasp. We remember in reading Daniel that he says more than once that he didn't understand all the things that were being revealed to him. And so it would not be surprising if we don't understand all of those things... But notice that what Deuteronomy 29.29 says is, is that these belong. some things belong to us so that we may do them. The practical things that are in Scripture are not the things that are difficult to understand, are they? Ten Commandments are not that hard to understand. The Sermon on the Mount is not that hard to understand. Those are the things we are to do. There may be other things that are difficult for us to grasp, but the things that we are to do are made clear. But not everything in Scripture Uh, is uh, like that not all things are obvious some things belong to God alone the text says and I've decided in my own mind at least that the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 are some of those secret things that Deuteronomy 29 29 talks about and so now we'll have the invitation song uh, now we can say a little bit more about it than that a little bit more about it than that there's just four verses that talk about these 70 weeks in uh, Daniel 9, and they are without doubt the most difficult, most controversial part of the entire book, and as a result, these verses have been subjected to so many different interpretations that uh, someone has remarked that it would take a book of considerable size just to list all of them, and I don't doubt that that's that's true. One writer put it uh, that there have been so many conflicting explanations that they tend to confuse rather than clarify Somebody else called the area of interpreting Daniel's 70 weeks a dismal swamp because you can just get stuck in it. You can just bog down and not come away feeling like you understand anything. Well, we saw in Daniel 8.27 that he didn't understand everything that was revealed to him, so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't understand everything either. And anytime there is so little consensus about the meaning of a text, We need to be very cautious, I think, about insisting that we figured it out, that there's only one interpretation that could possibly be correct. But let's think, first of all, why does Daniel talk about 70 weeks? Why does he even bring this up? What's going on in the book when this happens? Remember that in verses 1 through 19, Daniel had been confessing his sins and the sins of the people of Israel. He had determined from the prophet Jeremiah, from reading the book of Jeremiah, that the exile of the Israelites in Babylon was almost at its end, because Jeremiah said it would be 70 years. And Daniel could do simple math, and he realized that it had been 66 years since he had been taken captive in 605 B.C., and so he knows that the time is almost over, the time is almost up. But he knows that the people went into captivity because of their sinfulness. And so he prays, asking for God's forgiveness. Verses 20 and 21 say that before he even finished that prayer, the angel Gabriel, here described as a man, I think talking about his appearance, that the angel Gabriel came to him in swift flight. Here he is, hasn't even finished the prayer yet. And the angel Gabriel is already on his way to give him insight and understanding, verses 20, or verse 22 says. And notice verse 23. Gabriel says, Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a call went out to reassure Daniel. Isn't that great to know that when we start confessing our sins to God, he doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us in limbo. We don't have to wonder, is God going to forgive me or not? We don't have to wonder, uh, is this going to happen today or will this happen next week or a year from now? When we are confessing our sins to God, he is in the process of forgiving us. That's what Gabriel said to Daniel. So Daniel receives this revelation, Gabriel says, because you are greatly loved. Of all the things Daniel hears in this book, I suspect that was the one that meant the most to him. You are greatly loved. What a great message for Daniel to know that he is greatly loved. And the explanation is that 70 weeks have been decreed about your people and your holy city. And remember, those are the two things Daniel had been praying about. Remember that in 1 to 19? He'd been praying about the forgiveness of the sins of the people and the restoration of Jerusalem. And now here comes Gabriel, and Gabriel says that 70 weeks have been decreed in answer to that prayer. Seventy weeks have been decreed for the forgiveness of your people and for the restoration of your holy city. Now here's where things really start to get interesting, don't they? What did Gabriel mean by the 70 weeks? What is that all about? First of all, notice that 70 weeks is our interpretation. You may have a footnote in your Bible that indicates that what what the text literally says is 77s are decreed. And so that's assumed to mean weeks. But it could mean something else. We don't know. 77s have been decreed, uh, he is told. So are these weeks at all? And if so, are we to think of literal weeks or symbolic weeks? And what about the number 70? Is it literal or symbolic? And is it an exact number or an approximate number? We'll come back to all that here in just a few minutes, but just be aware of the questions that come up. But then look at verse 24. Gabriel lists six things that are to be accomplished during this period of 70 weeks. And here they are. First of all, the end of Israel's transgressions. The things that sent them into exile will come to an end and will be forgiven. Number two uh, is an end to sin. That's all it says, an end to sin. Isn't that a great thought? An end to sin. Number three, atonement for iniquity. Atonement means the the cleansing for iniquity, the bringing of, of humanity back into fellowship with God. Atonement for iniquity. And then number four, bringing in everlasting righteousness, replacing iniquity and sin with a righteousness that never stops. Number five, the sealing of this vision, and some translations say, and of the prophet, which I assume would be Daniel, or of the prophecy, but the sealing of the whole prophetic uh, movement, the sealing of prophecy itself. And then number six, the anointing of a most holy place. Gabriel then divides those 70 weeks into three periods. He says, first of all, uh, for seven weeks from the going out of the word to restore uh, and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. That's seven weeks, he says. Then 62 weeks. uh, Jerusalem shall be built again. All right, the longest part of the 70 weeks, 62 weeks, Jerusalem shall be built again. And then one week, and watch this, the coming of an anointed one who shall be cut off and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple, again The end of sacrifices and offerings and the coming of the one who makes desolate until the end is poured out. Now, you thought you had a busy week. (laughs) but Look at all that's going on in that, that final week. You know, whatever we determine that that week is, there's a lot that's going to happen in that week. Now, I want you to notice that Gabriel offers no explanation of any of this. You know, in some of the visions, there'll be some explanation to part of it. There's not any here. It just comes to the end of the chapter, and that's it. And notice Daniel doesn't ask for any explanation. I find that interesting, don't you? I think I would have had to say, Gabriel, before you go, you know, could you please? Can, you know, Is there a cliff note version of this? Is there, is there some way to, can you give me something to go on here? But he doesn't ask. He just accepts it. Uh, as being uh, the message that God has to deliver uh, to him. So Gabriel doesn't offer, Daniel doesn't ask, but interpreters have never been willing to leave that alone. And so uh, we have raised uh, all kinds of questions, most of which remain unanswered. And, And here, back to those unanswered questions, are the weeks literal or symbolic? Someone insists that they have to be literal, 70 literal weeks, and that the weeks symbolize years. Now that's an assumption, okay? Nobody really knows that. But a lot of folks assume that each week represents, uh, that they represent years. And so 70 times seven, that'd be 490 years, I believe. And, and if you try to figure up then 490 years as the period of, of what? 490 years starting when? And ending when. See, even if that's the the correct way to look at it, we've still got that question in our minds, starting where and ending where. There are two primary interpretations of that. Either that this is all leading up and pointing to that guy, that little horn that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Antiochus the Fourth who desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar and erecting a statue of Zeus in the temple. Some people say that's what this is all about. Others say no, it's about the coming of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Two so conflicting things. Uh, A a rascal like Antiochus IV, or maybe it's Jesus. Uh, You see how the the mathematics here can get us in trouble uh, in a hurry. But if it's talking about Jesus then, is it talking about only his first coming or is it talking about also when he comes again, which has been a long time now? Now, I want to suggest to you that it seems to me that the weeks are, are most likely symbolic, and here's why. One thing is, this part of Daniel is written in what's called the apocalyptic style of writing, similar to the book of Revelation, similar to most of Ezekiel. And in apocalyptic writing, numbers are almost always symbolic. I'm of the opinion they are always symbolic, but I'm going to say almost because I can't prove it. But numbers are almost always symbolic in apocalyptic literature. So that's a good reason to think that this 70 is a symbolic number. Something like the 144,000 of the book of Revelation or the number 666. You know, we recognize that those are symbolic of something else and not literal numbers. And besides, if the numbers are not symbolic, then we're just left to our own devices to try to figure out what's intended. And that's where all the multiple interpretations come from that get us into that dismal swamp because people are just putting whatever definition here that they want to put. And besides, there's always the danger of doing something we're not supposed to do, and that is try to predict when Jesus is going to come. Some people use this text that way Figuring out the 70 weeks of Daniel as pointing to the end time so they can predict when Jesus will come, even though he said in Mark 13, verse 32, of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man, not the angels of heaven, nobody but the Father alone knows that. And so it shouldn't be used that way. This isn't some kind of bus schedule to help us predict the time of the end. Also, both 7 and 10 in ancient thought were numbers representing perfection and completion. Perfection and completion. And so if you multiply 7 times 10 and get 70, it seems to me that the 70 represents the whole time until God's plans are accomplished. That may not be as specific as we'd like to be, but I think that's, uh, that's really what's being said here. Until the whole time when God's plans are to be accomplished, it's 70 uh, of these sevens. And so this is not intended to create some kind of an apocalyptic calendar so we can predict the end. But this is designed to tell us about things that are gonna take place in the future. So what are the 70 weeks about? Why are they here at all? If, if uh, it doesn't tell Daniel anything, and if it doesn't tell us anything about timing, what what's this about? Uh, there's got to be some significance to it, some understanding of it, whether we understand all the details of the weeks or not. I think the key is verse 24, so I want to ask you to look at that with me for just a minute. Verse 24, I believe, is key to the whole thing. Because look at what happens, according to verse 24, during the 70 weeks. The end of transgression and end to sin atonement for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, sealing of both the vision and the prophet, the anointing of a most holy place. All of those things are part of the 70 weeks. In other words, I think what Gabriel is telling Daniel is, "Is Daniel, it's wonderful that you're praying about the restoration of Jerusalem, but God has bigger fish to fry than that as important as that is there's something more important and that's the ultimate salvation that's going to be brought about by the messiah daniel what you're praying about is great and it's right that you pray about it but there's something more going on here something far more significant than what you are thinking about the restoration of jerusalem is a small part of that plan God is working to accomplish. There's something more universal here, something more spiritual, something that reaches even into eternity. What's Gabriel doing? Gabriel's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling Daniel, giving him a glimpse beforehand of what's going to be accomplished by God's son, Jesus Christ. Who could put an end to sin other than Jesus? by his perfect death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Who could bring about atonement for iniquity other than what Jesus did in his death? That's what it was all about, making atonement for our sins. Who could bring in everlasting righteousness? That could come about only when Jesus comes again and when, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3:13, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Doesn't that sound great? When you get tired of this one and you get tired of all the stuff that's going on, just think about that. God has promised a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Daniel got to know about that centuries before Jesus even came. Look at verse 27. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. You know, once Jesus died, there wasn't any need for sacrifices for sin anymore, were they? Uh, He offered the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. There remains no longer a sacrifice for sin. Uh, No need for it. And once the temple was destroyed again by the Romans, there wasn't any place to have sacrifices anyway. And there's still not. And so sacrifice has been brought to an end by the coming of Jesus. And what about that most holy place, that true sanctuary into which Jesus has now entered as our great high priest? I couldn't help but think as I was reading that verse, Daniel 9, 24, about some passages in Hebrews that speak to this over and over again. Things like Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, that in many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken through His Son. Didn't verse 24 say something about the sealing up of the prophecy and the prophet? Now God has spoken through His Son. Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that God set up, not man. Where is that holy place? It's what Jesus has established. It's what's in heaven. It's in the presence of God. And he has opened the way because he is the high priest. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, Thus securing an eternal redemption, that atonement that Daniel 9:24 talks about has finally been brought about by Jesus' own blood as he entered into the presence of God, offering up his own blood as a sacrifice for sins. And then there's Hebrews 9 verse 15. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What does Daniel 9.24 say? He'll bring an end to transgression. And now a sacrifice has been offered that puts an end to the transgressions, not only under our covenant through Christ, but under the first covenant as well. And what about that holy place that Daniel 9.24 talks about? John saw it in his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Don't miss that. What had Daniel been praying about? The restoration of Jerusalem. What does John see? The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. All the things that Daniel talks about, Daniel nine twenty-four, are summed up in the book of Hebrews and in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. What Gabriel is doing is telling Daniel when Jerusalem, not just when Jerusalem will be restored, he already knows that. He already knows that it's gonna happen from reading Jeremiah. He's preaching the gospel to him. He's telling him there is gonna be a solution to all of this. There's gonna be a solution, Daniel, to the problem of sin and sinfulness. There's gonna be a Jerusalem that will never be destroyed in the presence of God throughout all eternity. He's telling him, yes, God will keep his promises about the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. He'll let his people return to their homeland, but that's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You gotta gotta open your eyes, Daniel, and see a lot bigger picture than what you've been thinking about. God has something greater to accomplish than the restoration of one nation or one city. He has a plan in the works for the redemption of the whole world. And Daniel is allowed to get a glimpse of it long before it ever took place. And why? Because he is greatly loved. Because he was greatly loved. You know, the gospel this morning is that not only was Daniel greatly loved, so are you. Wouldn't that be great to hear the angel of God say, you're greatly loved? That's exactly what God is telling us through the gospel. We are greatly loved. God. so loved the world, did he send his only son? You see, that's what all this is about. It's not just about the rise and fall of kingdoms and rulers and nations. It's about salvation from sin. It's about putting us right with God. It's about the fact that Jesus died on the cross to make that possible. And what he did there, he did for you. He did for me. Daniel was greatly loved and got to catch a glimpse of it long before it happened. But you're greatly loved Because now you're on this side of that vision. And you get to look backward at it through the pages of the New Testament and see exactly the fulfillment of all those things that Daniel had been told. That God was going to bring an end to transgression and put an end to sin. Your sins as well as the sins of the whole world. That there's going to be atonement for iniquity. That Jesus would pay the price that you and I could never pay. The good news that brings in everlasting righteousness, what John foresaw in Revelation and what we look forward to when the Lord comes again and when there will be no more sin and no more unrighteousness. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy because it'll all be done, it'll all be finally fulfilled. There won't be any need for any more vision, any more prophecy. And then to anoint a most holy place. What did Jesus tell the disciples the night before he went to the cross? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'll come again and receive you to myself. That's the gospel preached by God's messenger to God's servant and now passed on to you. But it's not a gospel about secret things that you and I can't know. We may not ever figure out what exactly is intended by the weeks and the 70 and what dates would be signified by those things, but we know exactly what the message is, and we know exactly how to receive that great blessing. You know, on that day of Pentecost, after Jesus died, when Peter stood before an audience of people and proclaimed to them the fulfillment of all the prophecies, fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes in the coming of Jesus. And he says, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they cried out and said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that you and I are supposed to do are made clear, and that's one of them. Now that you know that, why don't you do it? Come and tell us while we stand together and sing. My hope is built on...